Morning, how's everybody doing? Good. All right, so got the intro on the beard. I'll give you the story on the beard. So I've been married, uh, I've been married 26 years, and I turned 50 this December. And uh, I told my wife, so for 25 years, I would walk out of the bathroom every Sunday morning and, and ask my wife, well, how do you want my facial hair cut? You know, I don't look at it. I don't care. It's up to you. You do what you want. So she said, trim this, cut this, do this, and I do whatever she says, right? End of last year, I said, you know what? I'm turning 50 in 2018, so I'm not going to shave the entire year of 2018. And she said, no, you're not. <laughs> and I said, you get 25 years, I get one year, you get the next 25 years. <laughs> so I, I shaved it all off on January 1st of 2018 for the first time in my daughter's lifetime. My daughter's 22. Shaved it all off on January 1st, and I'm going to shave it for the first time again, January 1st of 2019. And I can't wait to get rid of this thing, but, <laughs> but I, I, I get the, looks like Calvin looks reformed, looks old, looks, I'm only 49, but I, 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 I look like I'm 149, so. So, um, so as Pastor explained, so my wife and I, uh, were full-time missionaries just as of a year ago. So we were, we were in Sacramento. We had lived there for 20 years and we were both in our 30s and we were active in our church and, uh, and, and, uh, very involved and taking kids on mission trips. And my wife took adults on missions trips and, and, um, we were fat, dumb and happy. We had two six-figure salaries and we were in our 30s with a seven year, seven years left on our mortgage. And the Lord said, I want you to be a full-time missionary. And I, I did not like the idea at all. And um, I, I, I know about the sovereignty of God. I've read Jonah. I know how it ends. So I, 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 knew, I knew, okay, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to like it. And so my, my fleece that I laid out to the Lord, because I'm smarter than him, you know that. Um, I, the fleece I laid out to the Lord, I said, I know what I'll do is I'll ask my wife if she wants to go. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what smart 30-something woman who's got seven years left on a mortgage making six figures is going to want to go on the mission field? And so I said, okay, Lord, if, if, if you want me on the mission field, you'll convince my wife. And we had never talked about it, ever, ever. And so we had been married about probably 12 years at the time. And like any smart man did, I took my wife out to dinner. And, and I sat there, my wife describes it as it's like it's our first date. I'm just sweating and I'm, I'm just, oh man, I'm dying. And, and she, and I said, so, like, what do you think about doing this missions thing full time? She said, yeah, of course. <laughs> I said, no, I mean, taking our, at that time, seven year old, six year old daughter, taking our daughter, selling our home, quitting our jobs and going, live in some place. She said, yeah, absolutely. <sighs> so the Lord brought me around. I actually did enjoy, enjoy missions. Um, we, so we, uh, long story short, we didn't know. We called up Mission of the World and we said, uh, we said, hi, I, I, we want to be full-time missionaries. And, um, and they said, they said, great. Where do you want to serve? I don't know. God didn't tell me that part. And they said, oh, well, what's your background? And I said, well, I've got a a political science degree, and I've worked in politics for 20 years. Like, oh, 
um, does your wife have any resaleable skills? And, and, um, and, uh, I said, yeah, she's a, she's a, a registered nurse. I said, oh, good. Well, you want to work in medical ministry? I said, I, I don't know. God didn't say that either. So, Mission of the World ended up saying that they wanted us to go to Honduras and start a new ministry there. And so in 2007, we, we sold our home, we packed everything up, and we, we moved to Honduras, and we, we lived in Honduras, uh, started a brand new ministry there, and when we left after eight years, uh, the Lord had planted uh, four churches, we built a seminary, uh, my wife had, had uh, built a medical clinic in the jungle and another one in the city, and she was treating about 3,000 patients a year. We had a high school, did I say that already? A high school, we had a home for single teenage moms and a ministry to street children. And we turned that over to, um, by the time we left, there was 30 Honduran nationals and a dozen North American missionaries, and we turned it over to them, and it's still thriving, it's doing really well. And so for some reason, um, the Lord put on, on my heart the country of Equatorial Guinea, okay, Smallest, one of the smallest countries in, in Africa, the least visited country in the entire world. Um, one of three countries in the world where, where less than 50% of the people have access to potable water. Um, a third of the country, a third of the country gets malaria, not the, the, the nice kind, the mean kind, every year. Um, the, um, only one in four kids live beyond their second birthday. Uh, it's just a hard, hard place to live. And so I'll give, I'll give someone a gift. I got a gift right here. I'll give someone a gift if you can tell me what language they speak in Equatorial Guinea. What's the, the, the official language? Who said Spanish? Spanish. So it was a, the, 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 um, the country was run by, um, Spain for 500 years and, um, they speak Fong, F-A-N-G is the heart language, but Spanish is the, is the lingua franca. And so all, all school and commerce and everything is done in Spanish. And so, uh, it was a hard, hard place to live. We, we had two of the world's ten deadliest snakes in our front yard. Uh, we, we, um, we purified our own rainwater for consumption. Um, we had, uh, witches visiting us pretty reg- regularly and sending us uh, zombies, for lack of a better term, to be our, our servants. It's a long story. I know I'm, I'm going to cut that short. And you're all like, well, no, don't, don't cut that short. Uh, we can talk later about that. But uh, and, and hard, hard place to live. And so the director of Mission to the World, the new director, came, came into the into into the, as the head of Mission to the World about four years ago. His name is Dr. Lloyd Kim. He's a Korean American from the West Coast. And so, it, it, if you don't know this about our denomination, the PCA, it's a, we're in all 50 states, but it is a predominantly southeastern, old, southern white guys denomination. And that's cool. I'm an old white guy. I'm, I dig that. But it took a, it took a 40 something Korean American from, from the West Coast to become the director of Mission of the World to say, you know, the rest of the U.S. doesn't necessarily uh, jive with with us. They feel left out. They feel disenfranchised. So the Northeast and the and the Midwest and Texas and the West Coast. And so he said, what I want to do is I want to start regional 
offices for Mission to the World, where we do our recruiting and our training and, and, uh, and promoting missions and raising the missions IQ of the regions from those areas. Because like missionaries are into understanding culture and, and breathing culture, the differences, if you, on my, on my mission team, we had, we had, um, Californians, Arizonan, Arizonians, Oregonians, uh, folks from Texas, uh, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. And you want to talk about uh, cultural differences, that's cultural differences on a, on a, on a team, right? And, and so our, our director said, I, I want to open these regional offices. And so the first one he wanted to open was the West Coast office. And he said he wanted to put someone in charge of California, Arizona, and Nevada. So he called me and, and my wife in Africa, and he said, I'd, I'd hate to pull you off the mission field, but you, you're from the West Coast. Um, you have a heart for training and discipleship. Um, you've been on the mission field for 10 years, and, and we'd really love you to consider doing this. And I said, no. He asked me again, and I said, no. And my wife, who's six foot one, but I call the little Holy Spirit, um, she said, so have you prayed about this yet? And I said, listen, woman. Don't. Uh, no, I haven't. And she said, well, let's pray about this for a couple of weeks. And, and uh, she, she said, I don't want to leave Africa, but I think you're called to do this. This is what you should do. So I called up Dr. Kim and I said, yeah, I'd like to put my name in the hat. And, and uh, over a few interviews, they decided to, to um, hire me and bring me, bring my wife and I off the mission field. So a year ago right now, we landed from Africa in uh, back onto the West Coast. We bought a, just uh, bought a condo in April in, in Murrieta, California, in Southern California. Um, and so I, I get to do what I'm doing today, which is I get to, there's 133 PCA churches and a whole bunch of other Presbyterian and Reformed churches on the West Coast. And I, I get to, I was telling Pastor uh, on our way over here that the, um, the church that my wife and I go to, which means in a year I've been there six times. She goes there every Sunday, but every Sunday I'm in some other church. And I get to do what I'm doing right now. I can't believe I get paid to do what I'm doing right now. Let's talk about missions. And so, so what, so what I do for, for your, for like your congregation is if you folks want to get involved in short-term missions or you've got a, a young person that wants to, wants to go on a summer internship or you're prayerfully considering long-term missions, you talk to pastor and he goes, I don't know anything. Here's Pettengill's card. Talk to Pettengill. And, and then I, I help get you get get you involved in this right <clears throat> so so all that to say that's that's where i am and who i am and 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 that's my background a little bit and happy to talk more but this isn't about me this is about um sunday school is about learning about what the lord has and so what i want to do is take a, a little bit of time and talk about acts 1 8 and so you're, you're probably all familiar with Acts 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's good and all. It sounds great. But if you put it in context, you'll learn that there's a couple really astonishing things about this. First of all, that, that verse was shocking to the apostles. It was countercultural to the apostles. They could not imagine anything more flabbergasting than this. In addition, Acts 1-8 is an outline for the book of Acts, and it, it really it launched us into global missions. Okay, so to understand this all, you have to put it into context. You have to put Acts 1-8 into context. So, you know, um, Luke wrote Acts, right? And Luke wrote Luke. 
And Acts is kind of like uh, the Rocky II to Luke's Rocky, right? So you remember how Rocky ends? Rocky ends with uh, Rocky and Apollo Creed going toe-to-toe, and, it, and they almost knock each other out, and it goes to the 15th round, and, 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 and it's a split decision, but Rocky doesn't care about it. He's declaring his love for Adrian. Yo, Adrian, and Adrian comes onto the, comes onto the, onto the ring, and Rocky loses the split decision to Apollo Creed, and, and that's the end of the story, right? Well, that's the end of Luke. Well, Rocky II begins with literally the same exact footage of Rocky one, and then Rocky two really kind of commences with that, how every boxing match should end in the hospital, right? Where they're all, they're in the hospital getting treated for having beaten each other up. And then it goes from there. So this is, so, so Acts picks up exactly where Luke left off, okay? But, uh, you put it in context. So, uh, uh Luke, um, Luke one verse three begins, uh, the book. It says, uh, it seemed good to me also, having having followed all things closely for some for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? We don't really know. We think probably because this letter was written to him, he was probably a man of influence, maybe powerful or rich. We don't really know. Um, but then, how does Acts how do how does Acts one begin? Acts one verse one begins with, in my first book, Luke, in my first book, O Theophilus. So here he's writing his second letter to Theophilus. Okay? And, and so we come into this concept, um, in, at the begin, leading into Acts 1-8, the disciples are saying, it's, it's not, it's not, uh, Lord, when are you gonna take over Jerusalem? Are, are we done with this roaming around the, 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 the this countryside yet? Or, and, and he says, it's not for you to know times and places. And, and he basically says, bug off. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that you will receive power when, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which it hasn't done yet. Acts 2, right? Acts 2 is when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How radical was that? Okay, so they're all good Jews, right? So they all know the Mosaic law, the Levitical law, how to remain holy. So uh, as an example, we're going to focus on food here in a second. I'm going to run through Leviticus 11 real quick and see what that looks like to a Jew. Okay, Leviticus 11 is nothing special about it. It's just the food law. But if you're a good Jew and you want to worship the Lord, you want to remain ceremonially clean, you want to approach the tabernacle so that you can worship the Lord. When it comes to food, you've got to do Leviticus 11 and a few other things. But Leviticus 11 starts off in verse 1. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals uh, that are on the earth. Verse 3, Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Verse 4, nevertheless, among those that chew the cud and part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud and part and does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. Verse 5, the rock badger, because it chews the cud. I know what you're saying. Mike, please stop reading Levitical law. And that, if you're a good Jew, you kind of feel that way too. There's a lot of stuff going on. But what that means is, if if I'm a good Jew here in Vegas, and I'm going to sojourn to go visit my cousin in in LA, okay? That's a good let's call it a four day hike, five day hike. Okay? 
no Uber, no bullet trains, no flights, right? I've got to hike there. And if I'm going to hike there, I've got to bring my food. Because between Vegas and, and L.A., all those heathens in between, there's, there's not a lot of Jews. I, I, I can't have a meal with a non-Jew because he's ceremonially unclean. I can't eat his food. I can't really sit at his table or eat off his plate. If I brush up against a, Jew, uh, a Gentile, I've, I've got to become ceremonially clean so I can worship the Lord. And so it's difficult intentionally with this law for me to take a hike to Vegas. So I've got to have all my food already prepared in a ceremonially clean way to take my trip there and to come back. Okay, so it's in this, this law, parts of this law in part are intended to keep the Jews at home. A lot of the Levitical law, a lot of the Mosaic law, don't interact with other cultures, don't marry other cultures, don't, you know, eat your food this way. It was intended to keep Israel separate, to keep Jerusalem separate, so that they wouldn't interact with the world. And, and for all intents and purposes, evangelism during this time was the rest of the world walking past Jerusalem and going, what is it about those guys? They, they seem to win every battle they're in when they're outnumbered four to one and five to one and, and something good keeps happening to them. You know, let's go into Jerusalem and find out. Okay, that essentially, for all intents and purposes, is, is, is mosaic evangelism. Um, is that they were supposed to be the city on the hill, the light on the stand, and that they were to stand out. Okay? So they were meant to be kept separate. Now, we come back to Acts 1-8, and Jesus says, but you will be, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's fine. There's good Jews there. Judea and Samaria. It's a little harder. Uh, mostly Jews. Um, and, and to the ends of the earth. Well, hold on. What do you mean? We can't do that. That's not possible. We can't associate with the world that way. We can't. It's astonishing to the disciples, right? And, and you jump ahead into, uh, into Acts 10, and you've got Paul, or you've got Peter, sorry. You've got Peter, who has, who he's, he's, he comes home, he goes up to the top of his, his roof while food's being prepared, and he has a vision, right? And the sheet comes down, you remember this? The sheet comes down, it's got all the animals on it. And, and he hears a voice. From the Lord. It says, Peter, kill, eat. What's Peter's response? By no means, Lord. In case you're wondering, if you ever hear the Lord's voice, that's not the right answer. Okay? Um, By no means, Lord. Nothing clean has ever passed my lips. In other words, I'm a good Jew. I don't do that. Okay, so this is, so we're now, Acts 1-8, he says, Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now we see into Peter's mind why that's impossible. I can't eat that. I never have and I never will. And so the Lord, the, the sheet drops down a second time and he sees all the animals and he says, kill and eat. Sheet drops down a, 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 a third time and, and Peter says, I, I just can't, I can't do that. And, and God says, nothing I have made is unclean. All is good for you. Peter goes, really? This is new. This, I mean, 
So this means I, I can do Acts 1.8. I can go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. I mean, I'll send Paul to do the hard stuff, but I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I, I, I can interact with Gentiles, right? So then shortly after, there's a knock at the door. It's a Gentile. And it doesn't say Peter's really excited or he invites him in eagerly, but he does invite him in. It's likely the first Gentile he's had, he's had in his home. And, and he sits down, he eats with him. The Gentile defiles according to, to Mosaic law, defiles his home, his plates, his food. He eats with him, he shares the gospel with him, and the Gentile comes to, comes to Christ. And so we get into chapter 11 and 12, and, and, and Peter goes before the Jews, and they're like, Peter, what are you doing? We hear you were eating with Gentiles. He's like, yeah, yeah, guys, but listen, this is what happened. This is really, really cool. God sent the sheet and had the animals, and he told me to go ahead and eat it, and he said that nothing unclean, nothing that he made is unclean, and, and we can eat this now. So that means we can eat with Gentiles. And the Gentile became a follower of Christ's. And... And so the, the, the Jews are excited and happy. And so now this, is, this, this, this ushers in our ability to follow Acts 1.8. And so we now have the ability to obey the command. We've got Matthew 28, right? To, to, um, to baptize and train all nations, Acts 1-8, to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Okay, th- and let, me, let me stop here for a second. This is not a part of the Sunday school lesson where this missionary tells you that all good Christians um, sell their homes and go to Honduras or Equatorial Guinea or something like that. This is not that part. I actually don't have that part in any message I've ever given. Um, this is a corporate command. This is our our church, our our <laughs> the bride of Christ, we're called to do this. We're not asked to do this. We're commanded to do this. And I think John Piper cuts through uh, the, the confusion in this in his, in his own John Piper systematic theology way and says that when it comes to missions, there's three types of Christians. The zealous goer, the zealous sender, or the disobedient. Okay, we'll cut out the third one and we'll say we're either zealous goers or zealous senders. Okay, and that's, and, and I think, you know, I've read a lot of missionary biographies and I, I don't think I've ever read one about zealous senders, or zealous, uh, zealous uh, senders, yeah. But we're commanded to be senders or goers, right? And, and for 10 years, my wife and I had the cool job of getting our passport stamped. Okay, what this also is not, is this is not the point where you, where you get to say, well, whew, good, that's, I don't have to go. Mike just said it, the missionary said it, it's totally cool. Um, it, it, what it is, is that we have to be senders or we have to be goers. And we don't get to say, it's not my gig. I, I, I set up Sunday school for kids or I, I, I play on the worship team or, or I collect offering. That's my ministry. I, that's not, we don't get to do that. As a corporate body, we're required to, to send from our, from our body or, or to pray or financially support those from our body. And, and this is something I think, and we can, we can talk about this, we debate this over a, 
a good uh, reformed uh, uh, dark beer of some sort um, later. But um, I think when 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 Christianity began here in Acts two through seven, right? It's the launching of the church. Christianity began until the time of Constantine. You don't have to know your history, but you know that Constantine didn't necessarily make Christianity um, preferred religion, which is a common misnomer. He made it an acceptable religion. And it, so from from this time here in the early part of Acts until Constantine, Christianity essentially was an outlaw religion. It was um, it was known that Christ is coming soon, and we've got to multiply quickly. Okay, and and then once Christianity be, kind of became in vogue in the Roman Empire, uh, and then the Western world came around. Uh, this is—I'm not the missionary that comes back to the U.S. and I hate the U.S. That's not—I'm not—that's not me. I love it. Um, but in the Western world, we turned Christianity into more what I call navel-gazing Christianity, where we're more focused on our church is designed to help me become a better Christian. Yes, in, in part, in, indeed, sanctification is a part of what we do in the church. That we sanctify each other. We all make each other whole, more like Christ, right? That's our, that's part of what we do. But the, the, the heart of the church, the goal of the church are, um, you may know you have some heathens in Vegas, right? It, it, it's to reach the heathens in Vegas, so Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The goal of the church, as it was stated here, in, in Acts 2 through 7 is, is for us to reach the, the lost. And, and that means the lost in your home, the lost next door to you, the lost across the street, around the globe. So what does Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth look like for a church that's in, a PCA church that's in Vegas? It means indeed your, your, your Jerusalem is Vegas, okay? In theory, what, what Jerusalem is in this text is, it's the people like you. It's your culture. Okay, you, they, they, you root for the same sports teams. You're all excited, or maybe not, about the Raiders coming to Vegas. Um, you listen to the same music on Friday nights. You go out and eat at the same, same places. Um, you all dress the same during certain times of the year because it's hotter and colder. And, and, and that's, that's your Jerusalem. Okay, it's your culture, your people. And that's who we're supposed to reach. That we're a part of that. Also, we're supposed to reach Judea and Samaria. What's Judea and Samaria? Well, that's the, the, the neighboring communities that are kind of like yours. So you could say San Francisco and LA. Okay? They, they root for different sports teams. They eat different kinds of food, different kinds of climate, different kinds of, you know, things are different, but we generally speak the same language, kinda. Um, But we're supposed to reach them as well. And the ends of the earth, that's pretty simple, the ends of the earth, right? So we as, we as a PCA church here in Vegas, we're supposed to reach people in Vegas, people in San Francisco and LA, New Orleans, New York, and then London, Paris, Addis Ababa, Jerusalem, Johannesburg. And that's our responsibility. And so that, that's what, that's what it looks like to, to, to live out Acts 1-8 here from this congregation. So what about the 
the outline I mentioned is there's an outline of Acts 1-8. Uh, there's indeed, there's an, there's a, a, a very good specific outline for all of the book of Acts provided in Acts 1-8, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, first of all, you receive the Holy Spirit, right? That's in Acts 2. And then in, in verses, uh, in chapters 1 through 7, they are in Jerusalem, right? They probably would have been really happy to stay in Jerusalem, and the Lord had to kind of gig them a little bit to get them to get out of Jerusalem, so he, he, he allowed one of the, the, the brothers to be martyred, which they then said, maybe it's not safe for us to be in Jerusalem, so they decided to leave, right? And then in um, chapters 8 through 12, they are in Judea and Samaria. They're in the surrounding areas near Jerusalem. And then 13 through 28, they're exploring, with Paul's help, the, the ends of the earth um, from outside of Jerusalem to, to Rome, which at that time is the, the, the edge of the earth. Um, R.C. Sproul explains um, Acts 1-8 is the outline of, uh, of, of global missions in Acts. He says the book of Acts follows the outline of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, where Jesus instructed his followers to declare his gospel first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. In thinking about this commission, it is helpful to try and conceive of it as a series of concentric circles in the center of the circle is the focal point, Jerusalem or Vegas. Um, the starting place of the expansion of the early church. <laughs> On the outskirts of Jerusalem, we find the providence of Judea, north of Judea is Samaria, then beyond that is the whole world of the Gentile nations. So, what we have here is the 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 mandate and the permission to be involved in reaching the lost, right? The disciples of God, good Jews, up before this, didn't really have permission to do this. But what is it that gives us the ability to fulfill this command? It's Jesus Christ, right? We can't do this without Jesus Christ. Okay, then, then what that does is that opens up the concept of you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's, that's to me, the key part of Acts 1a. Um, I told you that my background before going in the mission field was I had a poli-sci degree and I worked in politics for 20 years. I worked in the state senate in Sacramento for 12 years. I, I worked around a lot of heathens and Gentiles, but I... I wasn't prepared to be a missionary. And, and the Lord, through my wife's and, and my work, did a lot of incredible things, allowed us to do a lot of stupid things, but did some amazing things. And it's not because we had mad skills or I had mad skills or she had mad skills, because we received power when the Holy Spirit came upon us. So before I went on the mission field, I used to, I used to train um, for evangelism at my church. Um, it doesn't matter. It was an evangelism explosion. It doesn't matter the program, but it was just, it was the training of, of missionary or training of evangelists. And, and part of that training was, is that, is that you would do classroom work and then you would, you would actually have to go out. I know this is scary, but actually talk to people about Jesus Christ, right? So we would go to, to apartments and we would go to shopping centers and malls and, 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 uh, 
how it would work is you would go out in groups of three. So you would go with a, an experienced evangelism explosion trained person and two students. And how it would work is the, the student and I are standing next to each other and the student would share the evangelism explosion gospel presentation until they couldn't remember anymore and stumbled. And then the key was that he would look at me and since I'm the teacher, I'm the pro, right? I would then pick it up and I would, I would go, keep going into it until I got to a natural stopping point and I would look back at him and that's the key for him to pick it up, right? And, and it's his training, right? So one of my dearest friends, and you may wonder if she is still a dear friend after the story. She is. One of my dearest friends was with me and I know her so well and, and that, that's number one. Number two, I'm a jerk. And so, I knew that she had everything she needed before she even started this class, except she could teach about the sovereignty of the Lord, but she couldn't live about the sovereignty of the Lord. She could, she could understand that the salvation of the lost was not her responsibility, but she couldn't live it. And she was so nervous. And so she started the gospel. We were outside of Walmart, and she started interacting with a Hindu um, from uh, his family originally was from uh, Sri Lanka. And so she was sharing the gospel with him and she started to stumble a little bit. And so she kind of clasped her hands and she looked at me, which is my key, right? My, my clue. And I looked away. And she was awkward and it was, it was hard and she knew what I was doing. And so she picked it back up badly. And she gobbled and gooped her way through and, and finally got back on track. Started going again. And she started to stumble and mess things up. And so she looked at me and I looked away. And she jumped back into it, really butchered it, did a bad job, and still gave what is today the worst gospel presentation I've ever heard in my life. And it resulted in a Hindu coming to Christ in front of Walmart. And he became a member of our church and, and started to be a, a dedicated um, disciple of Christ. And still is today. And so we, we were done, and we got back in the car, uh, uh, got into her SUV, and she started crying. And she started hitting me with all her, her just slugging me in the arm. I can't believe what you, I can't, why would you do that? I can't, did, were you there? Did you see what happened? A man just came to Christ. But I, you made me look like a fool, I can't believe it, and and she did everything but vomit on this man's shoes. And, and the Lord called him to, to himself. See, the, when, when, the, when, the, when the, the, the donkey in Numbers talks to Balaam and, and converts the prophet, C.S. Lewis, I'll paraphrase what C.S. Lewis says. What C.S. Lewis says of this donkey converting Balaam in Numbers, he says, he says uh, something to the effect of... Um, if we could be so fortunate, we could have a stable next to this ass in, in the celestial heavens. That, that maybe we, maybe, maybe we could be as fortunate as a talking donkey. Well, 
again, my friend was worse than a talking donkey. And, and so what, so why, why do I tell you all this? Because this is the heart of, to me, what is Acts 1-8. Is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and, 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 and to me, that is so absolutely beautiful. Because I think I'm one of the worst missionaries I've ever met. And the Lord did some astonishing things through what we did. I took the mentality onto the mission field that we would try 20 things. And 19 of them would fall, we'd throw them on the wall, and 19 of them would fall to the floor, and we'd stick with the one that, that was working. And that was good enough for the Lord. He said, I'll, 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 I'll redeem that. I'll, 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 I'll be glorified through that. And so what it does is it gives you relief from the anxiety, but it gives you ridiculous confidence in that, in that no matter how unqualified you think you are, the Lord says, you're everything I've ever wanted. Because, oh, by the way, it's not about you. It's about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives you the power. So, then is this, is this the part where the missionary says you all have to sell your homes and move to another country? No, this is still not that part. This is the part where you, you, where I, I encourage you to do what to, for me was the scariest, the scariest prayer I've ever prayed in my life. And, and that's where I said, um, it seems kind of silly now, but I said, Lord, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. I avail myself to you for your glory. And it scares the daylights out of me. Why does it scare the daylights out of us to pray a prayer like that? Because we know what? God answers prayers. We've seen that happen. We don't really want him to answer that one. Lord, avail, I avail myself for you to do with me what you want. And so maybe, yeah, that maybe does, that means you pray for missionaries or, or financially support missionaries. Maybe it means that you're the one that gets your passport stamped. But maybe it means, uh, the Lord's calling you to downsize your home so that you can have more money to tithe to the church. Or maybe it means that the Lord is calling you to adopt a Chinese baby or, or an African baby or, uh, I, I don't know what it means. But it's the scariest prayer I've ever prayed. It still is today. That Lord, and it's, and it's silly too because it's kind of like, I can feel the Lord tapping my head and saying, I know I control everything. Thank you for allowing me to have your life. <laughs> he already knew it, but I'm acknowledging it, right? And, and, and that's where I think it begins for us is that, is that what, what we do is we have the heart of saying, God, it scares the daylights out of me. I don't know what you might do, and I'm afraid of what you might. You might send me to Honduras or Equatorial Guinea I, I don't know that I want to avail myself to that. You'd be like me and say anything but that. I'll prove you wrong, Lord. I'll let my wife decide what we're going to do. And, and he will answer those prayers. And he will, he will, we avail ourselves. So, um, I want to close this out in prayer and then, uh, open us up for an opportunity, um, for some questions. And I've got some goodies to hand out for you all real quick. So let me pray for us. Um, Lord, Acts 1-8 is, is, um, 
It's a pretty big deal. Um, we know that we can't do any of this without Christ, and it's Christ that makes this all possible. Lord, we want you to, to work in us. Um, we avail ourselves to you. Uh, we ask that you give us the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to do these things that we know we can't do without, without you. Um, Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for everyone here that daily we, we acknowledge that we avail ourselves to you. Our, the, the air in our lungs and the, the money in our checkbooks, um, our lives, the lives of our family all, all belong to you. Uh, they were given to us for uh, your glory, Lord, and we want to use them for that. Uh, so, so, Lord, we ask um, this in your son's perfect name, knowing that he's the only one worthy of receiving uh, these prayers and the only one capable of answering them. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so a couple quick time for a couple quick questions, and I've got gifts for. So the gift that we handed out back there, this is a, a, a devotional written by MTW missionaries, and I, I did I did two of them in here as well. So it's a neat de- devotional, but to get it, you've got to ask a question. So don't make one up, don't like the, the square root of pi or something like that. I feel like a I feel like a Vegas magician. So, sir, we don't know each other. I didn't know we've never met before. Have we? So, it's like a as a plant question. So, I I started with Mission to the World because of their theology. Um, I was reformed before it became PCA, and then when it became PCA, my heart was reformed. I, I felt that that's where that's where God reached me. And so that's why I started going with MTW. When I, when, once we got on the mission field, I learned the dirty little secret of missions, and that is missions is hard. And every missionary you've ever met is suffering. And so what I want you to do, if you meet a missionary, you ask them, hey, how are you doing? They, they'll say, great, great. And then when they, you realize they're lying to you, because they are, say, no, really, how are you doing? Because what happens is your sin goes with you onto the mission field, but your support group stays home. Okay, so it's hard to deal with. So the reason why I love Mission of the World and I would work for them for free is because I discovered over 10 years is that what they have is, is a support network for missionaries that as missionaries are suffering, usually alone, and all missionaries are suffering at some level, MTW provides ways for them to, to, to be healed. They have a, uh, they work with kids, they work with, my, my wife lost, um, both parents while we were on the mission field, and it just rocked her world. Uh, she was an orphan. She had no more family, and, and she was gone, and she had guilt. Both very unexpected, and she wasn't there. And so it rocked, still rocks her world today. But MTW helped her get, get to a healthy point with that. So that's why I, I love MTW now is because of what they, they offer. So, yes, ma'am. Can you, um, it seems that from what I read that short-term missionary Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big supporter of short-term missions. Um, so first of, all, first of all, short-term missions breeds long-term missionaries. Dozen long-term missionaries on my team, 11 of us started our long-term missions work by first exploring short-term missions. Okay? Number two, it helps your congregation. So you folks, let's say, let's say, 
you send these two to go be short-term missionaries, okay? You're going to help them raise support. You're going to write checks in the name of Jesus, and then you're going to pray for them to send them off. And then when they come back, you're going to pray for them while they're gone. When they come back, they're going to report to you, and you're going to pray for the ministry that's going on. Well, that's all stuff you wouldn't have done in the name of Christ, raising the level of, of the Great Commission and missions in your congregation and then also focusing on the rest of the world because of short-term missions. The other thing is, is, is I get, I got asked, so I, I hosted 87 short-term teams, 897 short-term missionaries in my eight years in Honduras, okay? I had one bad experience, one person that would, I told her you'll never be invited back again, and she never was. Um, I had lots of people who came to me and said, so, I'm here now, but wouldn't it have been better had I written you a $1,500 check so that you could do the ministry? And the reality is, in a third world context, which is where I was, a typical home was one mom, five kids from five dads who weren't around. So moms didn't have time for the kids and there were no dads around. I've never seen, I've seen a $100 bill do lots of really good stuff, but I've never seen a $100 bill hold a kid. I, I've, and you don't need to know the language. You need to love human beings, not because they're lovable, but because Christ says that we love them. And, and I've never seen an impact like people who didn't know the language. Doctors and PhDs and seminary trained people who were literally dropped down to the level of a three-year-old because they didn't know the language and all they could do is grunt and point and love people. And at the end of seven days, they bawled their eyes out when they left. And the nationals bawled their eyes out when they left because there was a connection in Christ and Christ was glorified. So I, I love short-term missions. Yes, ma'am. Yes. So again, I feel like the the Vegas magician. Um, we don't know each other, ma'am. We've never met. You didn't. Know. Okay. So so again, this is why I dig MTW is because what MTW does that a lot of organizations don't do is um, they help to provide those resources. So up front, you go through training, and it's actually kind of a high level of training, a, a pretty lengthy training. Um, and that's why it's, we're doing it out here on the West Coast now, because when my wife and I did it, we had to go back to North Carolina and Georgia and New York to do the training. Well, now all the training is done out of, out of Westminster in Escondido, which that's what I do. I train missionaries there. It's, it's, so it's um, three one-week trainings and one one-month training. Then you've got to raise your support, plus you've got to be evaluated, and, and you've got to be vetted. And so what we, what Mission of the World doesn't do is they don't say, yeah, you're just not cut out for this. You should go sell cotton candy. Um, what they, it, 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 that has happened, but it's very rare. What normally what they'll do is, is they'll say, not now, come back next year. Or not Japan, let's consider Thailand. Um, and for various reasons. And so you have an entity that has experience that is speaking into, into your life. And then you talked about the financial issues. Uh, it's optional, but we were actually able to raise. So we, we, my parents are, my parents are much older. They're in their, they're in their late nineties. And so my parents are, are, um, depression era World War II folks. And the fact that my parents aren't Christians, when we walked away from 401ks and retirements and 
a home and security, they went nuts. And, um, and so we did. We gave up a big 10 years of our life, of our earning to go onto the mission field. Well, Mission of the World said you can go, you can raise financial support for a 401k. You can raise, uh, financial support for an annuity. So what we, what we lost in equity in our home by selling our home in a down market, we, we raised support to pay into that annuity so that when we, if we ever do retire, that, that we're in a little bit more stable. They, they provided international health care, even evacuation insurance, which we never had to use, thank goodness, uh, for political problems or medical problems that said, we'll fly you in, we'll fly, fly in, get you out, and get you back to, to someplace else. Yes, ma'am. What about the language um, It's different. That's my last book, so that's my last question. Um, so it's different site by site. And it depends on the, the local team leader. And so when I was a team leader, um, I mandated that all of my team had to go to language training for one year off-site so they couldn't be in the city they were going to be working at. And they had to learn Spanish in a full-time capacity for one year. In Japan, the requirement, requirement is two years. Okay, some team leaders say, ah, six months. Some team leaders say, oh, you can do ministry while you're learning. That's the best way to do it. It depends on the team leaders, but language learning is always included in the process. So you don't walk in and say, um, I don't know Swahili, but I want to go minister to those people. And, and they say, good luck. And they push you out of the nest. That's not how it works. They get you, they get you prepared. So, um, so let's go ahead and go over and worship the Lord and, um, and I've got a couple other things I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave over here. So, so, um, one is called the 1% program. We as a denomination, the PCA, are praying that our congregations will send 1% of their missionary, 1% of their congregation out onto the field. So that's not your, your worst congregants. Don't like pick the bad ones and send them out. <laughs> what does that mean? What does 1% mean? Well, we currently have 700 full-time missionaries on the field. If we had 1% of all PCA churches send, or 1%, all PCA churches send 1% of their congregants, we'd have 2,800 missionaries on the mission field. So it'd be a great problem to have. The other is, this is a little weird, um, but it's something I want to share with you. This is a training in Tucson that we're doing. It's a little far away. I'm not encouraging you to go. I'd love you to go. You may dig the topic or, or not. But what, what, it, what it is relevant to is that one of the things that, that I do is I travel around and I give different trainings. This training in Tucson in October is a training on the Christian response to immigration and refugees. Okay, kind of an interesting topic in the political environment right now, right? And so in Tucson, we're providing this one-day free training not to talk about Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, but to talk about what does the gospel say about immigration and refugees. So why am I telling you about this? What we do is is we travel around the region and every quarter we, we come to we get churches that say, we want you to come and do a training for us. Okay? So like this training, we're also doing a training on short-term missions. We have a couple churches getting together, and we're going to train them how to be short-term missionaries. We have another another one on sex trafficking. A church really wants to dive into getting involved in ministry to sex trafficking, and so they're going to do that. So if your congregation and your leadership um, wants to get involved in trainings, give me a call, and, and this is the kind of thing that we can find. I, you, can, you can't ask any more questions. It's all over. No, afterwards you can. Well, I'll be up here. So I'm going to leave these two up over here. So thank you very much. I'll see you over in, in, for worship.